Do you have any verses in the Bible that you just wish weren't there? Like Mark 1.35, where it says, Jesus got up early while it was still dark and went to a solitary place to pray. Because I'm called to be like Jesus, but I'm not a morning person. I know I'm supposed to share why I like today's passage in James 1, but it's a love-hate relationship. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I've had cancer twice. My grandpa and an uncle both passed away early after a 10-plus year battle with cancer, and my mom has had cancer, and my stepdad currently has a stage 4 incurable and operable cancer. When I hear cancer, I know it's going to be a trial, and that perseverance is going to be necessary. I think, okay, Lord, what are we gonna have to go through this time? It's not what do we have to get through to get back to life or what speed bumps do we have to move past? Because the trials and the temptations are a part of life. James says when we face trials. We will all face trials of some kind, not necessarily cancer, but we have to be careful not to miss out on what the Lord is going to do through us in those times. It's because of the trials and what we go through while clinging to the Lord that we are mature and complete. And honestly, I kinda wanna be lacking in something. Cause if I'm not, it means I have been through everything. And I really hope God doesn't think that highly of me. It is so good to see you all here this morning. If you're a guest, we're delighted that you're with us. If you're joining us on SOCC.TV, we're delighted that you're joining us as well. Um, we're starting a new series, Relevant Faith. We're going to study through the book of James, and I love the book of James. It's one of my favorites because it is filled with such practical wisdom for everyday life. James doesn't just give us some spiritual rules. He gives us spiritual tools to help us make the most of what God has entrusted to us. It's packed with common sense lessons. It's a great owner's manual for daily living. Some even referred to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. The wisdom contained here is easily understood. <laughs> it's just not easily applied. So here's the warning. This book is not for the weak or the insincere. This is not bedtime reading, folks. This book demands personal scrutiny. It calls for spiritual conviction and it challenges the reader to serious commitment. Some anonymous sage penned these words, you were only young once, but you can stay immature indefinitely. James is not about to let that happen in the church. And you say, okay, <clears throat> who is this guy anyway? Is this the James who's been a fisherman that was in the Lord's inner circle with Peter and John? <clears throat> the James who was the first true leader of the ancient church, and the first to be martyred for his faith? Or is this James, the other apostle named James, that was called James the Less? Wouldn't that be a terrible nickname? Here comes Less with two S's. <laughs> no, it's neither one of those guys. This is not either one of the apostles named James. This James is the Lord's younger brother. Both Matthew and Mark record for us the names of the four brothers of Jesus. Mark's gospel reads like this. And, and Jesus had said some things that were just kind of un uncomfortable for the Jewish leaders. And so the question is asked, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? 
Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. So we have spelled out here that he has four brothers, and we don't know how many sisters he had. But I want you to know that not one of them, not one of them was a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. I, I understand that. I do. I get that. I, I might be a little sensitive here being the firstborn older brother, but most siblings think their older brother has a Messiah complex. You know what I mean? Only in this case, he really was the Messiah. And, and, and you stop and think about the fact how awkward it would be to think this guy that shares my room is the son of God, the savior of the world. I don't think so. And the fact that we know that Jesus was sinless, that makes it a lot harder too. Can't you just hear Mary saying to these boys, boys, can't you just act like your older brother? He really is perfect. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of pressure, folks. And then there were the whispered rumors about his potential illegitimate birth. Or the troubling things that he said. Or the way that he just infuriated the leadership of the Jewish nation. How embarrassing. I've often wondered if the brothers of Jesus weren't like the brothers of Joseph in the Old Testament. If they could have, they'd have gotten rid of him. But the resurrection, the resurrection changed all that. <clears throat> Paul writes this <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. The James there is his brother. And that visit changed everything. Out of the four brothers that Jesus had, two of them wrote books or letters that are included in the New Testament, James and Jude. They also became stalwart leaders in the early church. Notice that in his extremely brief introduction, James opens up and says, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ to those Christians dispersed, scattered. That's it. <clears throat> no flowery language, no chit-chat, no how are you doing kind of a thing. He just digs right in. I think for James, he felt like he'd wasted precious time. Those early years in doubt in this humble letter begins with only a brief prelude to the heart of the message. He doesn't even say, I'm a brother of Jesus. He just says, I'm a servant of Jesus. It's as if James is saying, this isn't about who I am. This is about who we're supposed to be in Christ. And he writes to bring us to maturity in Christ. There's no, there's no well, little things here. These are all big concerns. Someone said James writes like his pen is running out of ink. He's in a hurry to get us to where we need to be. And he actually begins by suggesting that we need to change our perspective on life. Now you've heard it first. Matt read it in uh, the introduction there a few minutes ago. But I want you to hear it again. This is so important that we understand how James opens up. In verse 2 he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James wrote to the first century church, which at the time of his writing was composed predominantly of Jewish Christians. And these Christians were scattered among the nations around the Mediterranean and and understood their times well. They were rejected and persecuted by their Jewish kinsmen. They were abused and exploited by the Gentile elite. They understood what it meant to face unannounced trials and tests on a daily basis. But when James writes his letter to these struggling Christians, he doesn't begin with a word of sympathy. Oh, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. And he doesn't write to incite them to rebellion against what's going on. Rather, he opens with these remarkable, hard-to-grasp words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, there are a couple incredible thoughts that leap out of James's initial imperative here. The first is simply this, the inevitability of tough times. He didn't say if, he said when. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Job wrote, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. There's no getting around it, folks. Sparks fly trials come. There's no exemptions or exceptions. No note from your doctor will keep you out of participating in the tough times of life. And the second thought that James gives us here is is, uh, even more incredible, I think, than the first. James reminds us that going through tough times ought to be considered joyful. (laughs) I, I don't know about you. That is not the word that comes to my mind when I'm going through difficult times. When I hurt, when I love people that are hurting. I, these aren't things that, con, that I consider to be joyful. It runs contrary to every fiber of human nature. Who would think of difficulties as something to celebrate? And James doesn't write just joy. He says pure joy, genuine, sincere joy. None of this faking joy or putting on a good face in front of somebody else kind of joy. He says it's got to be real joy from the depth of your soul. And the word trial here means an external adversity, which, which actually gives us the opportunity to potentially make something good out of it. Uh, it's the opportunity to develop something, well, positive as the end result. And the word is actually used of a bird testing its wings for the first time. A small bird leaving the nest, leaping out into the air and hoping that those two little wings will, will help it fly. You see, it's a test, it's a trial, but the end result is positive. That's what James is talking about. He said, take your trials and your times of testing and look at how something positive can come out of that. Now, whenever we face temptations and tough times, there is a lot of stress and anxiety. We fear we'll not survive the moment. And in our anxiety, we often ask this question. Why, God, would you let this happen to me? Every week that goes by, someone in this congregation faces heartbreak. And and I can't... Think of very many weeks when it's just someone. Most of the times it's several in this congregation. And sometimes we look at those moments and we, re- we respond incredulously. I, I don't get it, God. What did I do wrong that you're punishing me like this? Or if this isn't from God, then why isn't he, he helping me get through it? 
Well, the truth of the matter is that God does help us get through it. We may not see it. It may not come in some miraculous kind of explosive way, but God does help us get through it. But the problem is we're asking the wrong question. Why do we assume that it's always God's fault when something bad happens in our life? James is quick to remind us about going down that illogical path. In verse 16, he says, don't be deceived. My dear brothers, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. James says, hey, God is the giver of, of the good things. So when we, when we blame him for the bad things, James says, you're, you're being deceived. How? By whom? Well, folks, you need to remember that the presence of God in this world, the light of God's presence in this world, isn't the only force at, at work. There is a dark side. For more than uh, two decades now, science has benefited from what they have learned from the Hubble Space Telescope. Launched back in 1998, uh, it, it has corrected a lot of assumptions. But before the Hubble Telescope was launched, it was assumed that the expansion of the universe was slowing. Science knew that the universe was moving outward, but it was convinced that the outward movement was slowing down because uh, there is matter in the universe. Matter has gravity, and gravity pulls all things together. But from the knowledge of the Hubble telescope, they learned that their assumption was wrong. That the universe is increasing its expansion at an, at an ever-increasing speed. Scientists now propose this, that dark energy composes 68% of the universe and dark matter another 27% of the universe, and that's a total of 95%. In other words, we really only have a grasp on 5% of the cosmos. In the heavens above us is a vivid reminder that there is a dark energy, a dark force out there. Can't see it, but it's impacting our lives. What is true of the invisible universe is also true of the, in, of the invisible spiritual universe around us as well. There is a dark energy at work. We have an enemy, and he pulls out all the stops to tempt us and to test us. His desire is that he will destroy our faith. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Someone is dragging us away and enticing us with those temptations. The apostle Paul reminds us that we wrestle with the rulers of this dark world. So why doesn't God intervene? Well, a couple things. If God always intervened, we, we would not be free people. We would be robots or puppets on strings. And none of us really want that. But James gives us an additional insight here. He says, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is not the designer of the bad things in our lives. He's only the designer of the potential that can come out of the bad things. I read about a, an artist who once while 
sitting on the terrace of his favorite restaurant, noticed an ugly stain on the wall. He asked the owner if it'd be okay if he came in and painted on that wall. The owner said, sure. It's kind of an ugly wall the way it is. So the artist came in, took that stain, and created it as part of the centerpiece of what became a beautiful scene. The blank wall with the ugly stain became a mural on that wall, and suddenly the stain is no longer ugly. It's been incorporated into something beautiful, and it became the centerpiece of that beautiful mural. That's what I think happens to us a lot. The tough times and the trials of life, like marital discord or financial stress, or job losses, or unexpected medical crises, are the stains upon the walls of our lives, but God can design something positive, even beautiful, out of those stains. See, this is the better question we ought to be asking. Is my faith stronger? Am I more mature because of these trials? And James offers a few mile markers on this road to spiritual maturity. Uh, and I just want to highlight those for a couple minutes here. Here's the first one. Wisdom. You, you want to know if you're maturing in Christ? Then check your wisdom. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But... When he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. One need not look far to see that there is a drought of wisdom around us. Have you ever been around somebody and wonder how in the world they got a job in the first place? I read not long ago of a man who called his insurance company to tell him that he was moving from Texas to Vermont and would they please change his address. The lady who took his call asked where Vermont was and as he was trying to explain, she interrupted and said, look, I'm not stupid or anything, just tell me what state it's in. <laughs> you got to wonder sometimes where people are coming from, don't you? Our problem is that it's easy to spot a lack of wisdom in other people, like that lady on the phone. But we seldom see the lack of wisdom in ourselves. Wisdom isn't the same thing as knowledge. You can have a dozen college degrees and still not be wise. Wisdom is more akin to common sense. And true Christian maturity begins when we acknowledge our lack of spiritual wisdom and our need for only that which God can give. And God's willing to give generously. But here's the deal. James says, don't ask unless you have the faith that God's wisdom is better than your own. Don't ask if you don't believe God's promise that he will give you wisdom if you ask for it. Because the person who says, well, I'm going to ask, but I really don't think God has any better wisdom than I do. It's like a man tossed on the waves. You can see him rising and falling up and down and up and down. They go, but they're getting nowhere. They're just going up and down on the waves. Unstable, bobbing through life. Such is an empty faith, James says. Author Elton Trueblood said, an empty, meaningless faith is worse than none. Such a person, James says, is double-minded, or he has a double soul, fickle, unstable, inconsistent. 
So, so check your wisdom. Want to know if you're making progress on that road to maturity? Check your wisdom. Here's something else. Impartiality. It's another mile marker. James verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in a high position, but, not, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Now, James just kind of plucks an an illustration out of uh, life, one that we're pretty familiar with, actually. And and he talks about the partiality, the the, the divide sometimes that we create between people. This one is is one that he refers to more than once in his book, and that is wealthy and and poor. Uh, But that's not the only one. There are a whole lot of ways we draw lines in life. And James says it ought not to be so. Uh, lines have been drawn in the past, some of them really awful. Thankfully, we don't live in a country that has a caste system. But I have been in countries that have a caste system. And you can't get from the low caste to the high caste. And the high caste won't reach down to the low caste. The only place where people are equal, are you ready for this? In those kinds of situations is in the church. Where the lines are blurred and dropped which is the way it is supposed to be, which is the way that James is talking about. But we we do it here in our country sort of informally. I I, I never cease to be amazed at how celebrities are sought out for their wisdom, even if they have none to offer. (laughs) Have you noticed because somebody is famous, everything they say must be wise or true? There are a lot of people who have a lot greater wisdom to offer that are never heard from. Because we do have the divide at times. God does not view us outwardly. He judges our hearts. And James says that's the way we ought to be. We ought to not look at the outward. We ought to look at the inward. He wants the church to be impartial. And why shouldn't he? Did Jesus die more for some than he did for others? I don't think so. God loves equally. Your social standing, your economic standing means little to God. He can and will use anyone who submits to him. It's not about our heritage or our bank accounts. It's about our attitude toward one another. This theme of learning to be impartial is something Jesus, or that James will revisit several times in, in his little book because it is, well, it is so close to us and our human nature. Just just consider these thoughts on the matter of impartiality. Don't judge a book by its cover. Okay? Don't judge a book by its cover. You've heard that for years. How do we apply that? Well, let me ask you a couple questions. Uh, How many of you have ever had like a parakeet or a canary or finches or some other kind of a pet bird that you've had in the house? Any, any? Okay, some of you have had pet birds. Uh, our girls had a parakeet growing up. We had finches and that type of thing. Uh, they, they can be lovely little companions. How many of you ever had a buzzard for a pet? Anybody? Okay, I kind of figured that would be the answer. Despite the ugly appearance of a vulture, its role is to keep this world beautiful. Don't, don't, don't judge a book by its cover. Our bird, by its appearance, you know, I I get it. A vulture's presence may not be endearing, but the creator designed the vulture with unique capabilities for our benefit. 
It possesses incredible eyesight, an extraordinary sense of smell, and one of the strongest digestive acids in the world. Because you see, the vulture was designed to devour the dead of this planet. Have you ever stopped to think what a nasty place this would be if there was nothing to devour the dead? Not only did God provide a wonderful gift in the vulture, he teaches us an important life lesson. Outward appearance is no indication of a person's worth. Be appreciative of what others do to make this world a better place. Treat everyone with respect, seeing that Christ died for all without partiality. So the next time you see a vulture soaring on the thermals, just remember what God has taught us with this somewhat ugly and yet beautiful bird. And here's something else. Don't try to be something you're not. Just be yourself. Don't try to be something you're not. All of our grandkids have loved sitting with Elsie when she plays the piano, especially when she plays their favorite songs. Now, Elsie is an outstanding pianist, and, and she can play anything. But I remember once when Addie was little, she was, Addie was just barely two years old, Elsie took a phone call, and I thought, okay, well, I'll sit down and fill in where she stopped. I tried feebly to plunk out the tune on the keys. Addie knew something was wrong. She wasn't sure what. So about 30 seconds into my lousy rendition, she looks at me and she says, it needs batteries, da. <laughs> that was her only conclusion. The piano needed batteries because it sure wasn't working like it was a few minutes ago. I learned that day, stick to your strengths. So you aren't rich like the person down the street. No big deal. Use what you have to honor and glorify God. So you don't have the skills that the coworker has down the hall. No big deal. You are skilled. Just be faithful to use your talents to serve and to honor God. Remember, folks, we are all headed for the same six-foot plot of ground where everyone is equal. In the meantime, be yourself. Think the best of others and serve God faithfully. Here's the last of those mile markers on the road to maturity. Perseverance. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When we don't have the answers for life's trials and temptations, when we struggle to understand how God could possibly use the latest setbacks in life, when nothing around us makes sense, don't you give up. Persevere. Keep the faith. Margaret Carty said, be like a postage stamp. Stick to one thing until you get there. That's perseverance. You'll find the naysayers all along the road. Those who will belittle your faith. Those who will tell you to give it up. Those who will remind you that there really isn't anything to this Jesus Christ story after all. Don't listen to them. You just keep on keeping on. Persevere. I like the story of the snail that started up the apple tree one cold winter day. As he inched upward ever so slowly. A worm stuck his head out of a crevice in the bark and sneered, You're wasting your time, snail. There's not a single apple up in that tree. The snail smiled and said, 
There will be by the time I get there. (laughs) That's perseverance. Sometimes it's an uphill battle. Sometimes the going is slow. But persevere. Yes, you say, but, but how do I know that faith in Jesus Christ is worth the perseverance? Let's go back to what we learned from the Hubble telescope. Remember that I said that the dark energy composes 68% of the universe and dark matter another 27%. That's 95% of the universe. That we only have a grasp on 5% of the cosmos. here's Here's the interesting thing. Here's the rub. We can't see or even measure dark energy or dark matter. But science believes it exists because of its effect on what can be seen. We can't see it. We can't measure it. But science says it's real. It's out there because of the impact it's having on everything else. I don't know what you call that. But I call that faith. I cannot see God. But I can measure the impact of his love, grace, on mercy on what can be seen. Look around you folks at the majesty of springtime. Talk to someone who's endured tough times but through Christ has not given up. Hear the joy in one whose life has been transformed by the Lord. I may not be able to see God, but I can see him at work in everything around me. A.W. Tozer wrote, he said, Faith is seeing the invisible, but not the non-existent. So even though the Lord may be invisible, we can see him at work everywhere. Persevere. Be wise. Be impartial. Be yourself. Don't judge a book by its cover. Keep your eyes on him and him alone. And let the mile markers go by as you persevere to your very last breath. Keep the faith even when it's tough, in the trials and temptations. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.